and welcome back to our podcast, School Buzz. I'm your host, Rebecca Cooksey, and I know it's been a while, uh, but today we are going to talk about our facilities update and all the work that they've been doing. And today I have with me Dr. Larry Fries. So, uh, Larry, can you give us a little background on your uh, what you do for our district? Well, thanks for having me today, Rebecca. Yeah, I'm the Assistant Superintendent of Business Services, and uh, I oversee multiple divisions, uh, child nutrition services, accounting, payroll, risk management, and facilities. So that would be the upkeep and maintenance of our facilities, as well as uh, new construction and modernization projects. And all of those departments have been working very hard during this pandemic, because I know our, our child nutrition has been still giving out meals to our kids, and we still get paid, and I know facilities have been doing a lot of work over this pandemic. It's absolutely right. Uh, since the pandemic, primary responsibilities, when, when the pandemic first came about, was making sure that our office facilities, because the teachers, many of the teachers are working from home, making sure our office uh, facilities were considered COVID safe and healthy. And for a lot of people's workstations, that meant that we needed to relocate workstations so people had six feet of distance. Or in some cases, we put up uh, plexiglass partitions between people. We also did that at the front desks for all of our different facilities. So as the public comes in, there's a plexiglass partition. And uh, in terms of PPE, the personal protective equipment, uh, our uh, maintenance and operation division makes sure to place all the orders for masks and gloves and uh, face shields, all the disinfecting products that we use. And they distribute that through our work order system to make sure that the school sites have all the supplies that they need. Well, I know that um, they've been working hard uh, to get our schools ready for when kids eventually, hopefully, get to come back to school. And I know that that's been a huge amount of work, trying to find the right filters and um, thermometers at schools and just a, a ton of work just to even prepare for this to come back. That's correct. Yeah, you know, we uh, we recognized that we needed to, we could in, in improve the quality of air within our classrooms and offices through the uh, heating, venti- heating ventilation and, and air conditioning system, HVAC, by getting a higher quality filter uh, that uh, traps more particulates. And uh, the, the type that we ordered, and then there's a rating associated to it, it's called a MERV 13 filter. But what we didn't realize is that the components that go in these filters are the same material that goes in an N95 mask. Oh. <laughs> so filter manufacturers are having a difficult time getting the raw materials they need to make our filters. So we placed a filter order back in August, and knock on wood, we're supposed to have them installed next week. And we're supposed to have them within about three or four weeks. So uh, the supply chain has been extremely challenging or certain products as the entire country is trying to get a hold of these uh, particular materials. I can feel your pain because when we were ordering laptops and Chromebooks and everything else that we were ordering at the same time, everybody else was, and there was a, a big hiccup on and trying to get those devices. So yeah, I know what know what you were going through. Well, I tell you, one of the things that has been a, a, you know, a blessing in disguise was there's a lot of construction projects that uh, uh, we're challenging in that how do you keep the students clear of some of these projects as we're doing them. For instance, we have one school site where we're replacing the covered walkways that kind of snake throughout the whole campus. And these allow students to move from one part of the campus to the other with something over their head. So if it's raining outside, they don't get wet and, and whatnot. Well, these walkways are just deteriorating. They, they're as old as the school. 
and in some cases they're rusting through and they're falling apart. We recognize that we need to, to replace these, but it's a six-month project. So how do you do this and balance that with students being around on campus? Well, lo and behold, the pandemic says students shall not come to campus. They're, they're getting instruction from home. We saw that as an opportunity to jump on this project and do the entire project while students were learning from at home. So a little bit of a silver lining to a cloudy situation, but we'll take it. So I, th I think that's uh, happening at Desert View, right? That's correct. We do have two other schools that are also in need, not as bad as Desert View, but Sunnydale and uh, El Dorado are slated to have their covered walk days, walk days replaced some point in the future. Uh, we also have to see how our bond money holds out because uh, it's, it's currently a Measure L funded project. So besides those walkways and the, the plexiglass, what else has facilities been working on during this pandemic? Well, you know, we have projects that we're doing with our own people. Uh, for instance, uh, over at Lincoln, the southwest corner of the campus was at one time a temporary school while Lincoln, the main building, was being built. And uh, they've, uh, over the years, they've moved into those facilities and uh, early childhood education uses part of the facilities. But we acknowledge that our Linda Verde Center, which is over on the Linda Verde campus, which serves some of our highest needs special population, uh, that facility was very dated, uh, built back in the 60s. And um, we want to modernize that facility, but we need some place to put the students. So we looked at uh, the, this camp, this, uh, these buildings at the southwest corner of Lincoln, and we said, you know, that could be the new Linda Verde Center. And we needed to do some work over there to prepare it, not near the amount of work that we have to do in the actual Linda Verde Center building. This was more painting and, and changing some walls and, and doing some other work in the main building, it's a large, looks like a cafeteria, and uh, the adjacent offices. So our maintenance workers uh, and our carpenters, our electricians, they went in and did a good deal of the work on the interior of the building. So paint, uh, new power, uh, different wall configurations. We also contracted with the company to do some concrete improvements and some roofing. And uh, we're pleased to say that probably next week, uh, the staff will start moving into the facility and the office spaces. And when our students do return, they'll return to this new Linda Verde Center um, at that particular location. So our guys have been hardworking there. Also uh, over at Parkview, uh, we, uh, we relocated pupil safety and attendance to a different part of Parkview's campus. And then their building we modernized to become the new office for the Leadership Academy. And now the Leadership Academy's old office is going to be converted to something else. All this work is work that our people do. We also have our work that we contract because it's just too big. So the Desert View Walkways was a contracted project. And uh, we continue the modernization at Joshua. We are now in phase three, uh, with phase one being some office spaces. Phase two is the cafeteria. Now we're actually getting into the classrooms uh, I think there are five buildings that we're modernizing. We're making good progress in that. Uh, we also uh, modernized the landscaping on the west side of uh, Linda Verde campus. And uh, so that that's our project is already completed. And um, we've completed a number of playground projects in conjunction with the settlement with the company that uh, constructed the Endeavor Gym. So we've got a lot of new playgrounds out there. Uh, along with some other playgrounds. I think we put in seven new playgrounds 
in the past 12 months. So that's a great way for the entire Lancaster community to get to experience some of the good things that came out of the Measure L work. Uh, let's see, some other stuff we've done recently is some uh, more concrete work at Leadership Academy. Uh, we continue to do the modernization of the old Parkview campus, converting classrooms over to offices, and eventually our Education Services Division will move over to Parkview along with uh, special education, and that'll become uh, their stomping grounds from this point forward. And then just the you know, general work that we do uh, in, uh, for other different uh, specialty areas, we're putting in a new uh, standalone freezer here at the district office. It's about twice, uh, about 60% bigger than the current freezer they have. And this is just, uh, this is a Cadillac of freezers. Let me tell you, this is the neatest fruit uh, freezer. It's about the size of a portable classroom. So almost a thousand square feet. And uh, it's a dual levels of concrete with coolant that flows through the floor. And uh, I think you can run it at about minus 35 degrees in there. And that'll be a primary place where see, uh, Child Nutrition Services stores all the frozen goods that we get. Right now, our freezer is just about full. And we continue to expand meal service. But we need a place to put the food. And uh, we're storing it now, not only here at the district office's old freezer, but at all the school sites, we're using their freezer space. This will allow us to have them one centralized location and then uh, warehouse it all here at the district office and then ship it off to the different school sites as needed. So those are the big projects we have going right now. And, and uh, those will probably consume the, the rest of the school year and, and in the next one. I've noticed the progress on that freezer. They're digging a big kind of hole in the middle of uh, the, the campus. And that seems like it's a huge project. It, it, it is. Uh, it, and it was significantly more expensive than we thought it would be. Uh, but the uh, they're at the point now where they're, they're uh, this, this design is like a heat exchange system. So uh, in the process of creating cool air, uh, something has to get hot. So if you, you know, inside your house, it's nice and cool in the air conditioning, but if you go outside where that fan is, it's hot out there and it has to do with exchange of heat. You exchange heat to make things cool. In this freezer configuration, we have to get really cold air. I mean, down to well below zero, and that creates a lot of heat as a byproduct. So we're going to use this, this heated uh, liquid like that acts as a, a radiance of the heat and pump it into the two layers of the floor. There's an upper layer and there's a lower layer. We're going to have little tubes that run through the lower concrete layer and make sure that that layer doesn't freeze. And the reason why is uh, if, if a concrete floor of the freezer freezes, and it will because it's cold, but if that cold permeates all the way to the bottom of the concrete, it'll hit the soil. And if the soil freezes, it has moisture in it. And when moisture freezes, it expands. And what you can have is cracking, or even worst case, the floor can buckle. Hmm. And so that's what we're trying to do is you have a top layer of concrete, and then you have a layer of insulation, and then you have another layer of concrete. And that bottom layer of concrete is constantly warmed. So if the cold ever seeps down to that layer, the glycol and the, and the heat in there stops it from freezing down to the ground level, which means you don't have cracking or heaving in the floor of the concrete freezer. And as an expensive freezer, you don't want that floor to give way in any, any way because you're driving um, forklifts on it. It's, it's, that's how big this freezer is. Uh, we need to protect that investment. So 
Uh, that's a big project. And if you were to look out there today, today they're, they're putting down that tubing and they're pressure testing it. And next week, they'll actually put the concrete over that. That's the first level of concrete. Well, I'll have to take a walk this afternoon and check that yeah. out. It sounds very complicated, something I would it's never really think of. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, what um, challenges have you had during the pandemic with facilities? Well, I think, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's meeting the, con it seems like constantly changing requirements of the Department of Public Health for oh, safety. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and also meeting meeting a level of safety which is many times above and beyond what department of public health requires us you know the part the department of public health requires certain thresholds minimum thresholds for safety we meet all of those sometimes employees want something more than that as just assurance uh and it can be difficult to try to meet those when you know it requires an extra work and extra materials from our people we're doing we're doing the minimum that we have to do and once you start meeting those specialized needs, well, then everybody wants a specialized need. So it's been challenging to balance those special requests uh, with the manpower and the work that we're using in other places. But for the most part, you know, when the students aren't around, wear and tear on our schools is significantly less. <laughs> and so we don't, we didn't have a big rush to repair air conditioners at the start of the school year. None of the classrooms were using them. So we got to use those guys in a different form and fashion. So if anything, we've been able to accelerate the work that we're doing over at the new Linda Verde Center and over at Parkview, the work that our people do. And, uh, and, and again, a, a blessing and a, a silver lining in a dark cloud, uh, it, it's allowed us to, to take it. We, we definitely wanted to take advantage of this unique time because we're never going to see something like this again, hopefully. Hopefully, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we took advantage of it. We put it to our use and, and we capitalize upon the, the not, students not there to take on some uh, challenging work and, and get it finished by the time they come back. Well, and also still just maintaining the regular things like cutting the grass and making sure that you know, the, the environment looks good. We still got to do all those things, even though the kids aren't here. So that can Absolutely be challenging. Right. Um, sometimes at board meetings, we hear about change orders. Can you explain what that is? Sure. Well, a change order, uh, which is not the, the, the nicest thing that I actually have to bring before the board, because it always typically means it costs more money. Mm -hmm. But um, when we hire, when we let out a bid, or, uh, and when you bid something, what you're doing is you're, you're taking a set of plans for some sort of construction project, and you're putting it out into the construction world, and you're receiving back offers by contractors to do this work. And we're required to accept, to take the lowest contract offer because it's a public work project that uses public monies. Um, that contract, that's a binding agreement between the district and the contractor. And the work that's laid out is the work that the contractor is to do. Well, sometimes, especially in facilities that are very old, they discover things that weren't part of the original plans or issues that pop up that the architect wasn't aware of that have to be corrected. And uh, the contractor, of course, will claim, well, it's going to cost me time, money, and materials. And I would like to be compensated for that. And technically, they have a right to be because it wasn't part of the original contract. And so what they do is they put in something called a change order. And what the change order does is basically a change to the contract because you're adding more labor, 
and more materials and more work. And so it's a request to modify the contract. And typically it adds a greater cost to the district. And it might even add a couple days to the length of the contract. So that change order contains the estimated number of hours and then correspondingly the cost of those of that work, the materials and the contractors also able to build in profit and overhead as a percentage. So there's usually about 15 percent. They just tack on to that. The board, since the board approves all contracts, the board also approves all contract changes. So the change order, which is a change to the contract, goes before the board and they are, you hope, in most cases, in every case they have so far, they've approved it. Now, the challenge we run into is sometimes these discoveries almost stop the work. They have to correct these situations before they can go on to the next thing. So if we wait for the standard timelines associated with board approvals, it could be two or three weeks, or if it's summertime where we only meet once a month, it could be five or six weeks before this change order goes to the board and it can stop the project. So the board has authorized the superintendent and the designee, which is me, to basically approve change orders without board approval. So when the change order comes to me, I have already approved the work because I can see that it's corrective action that needs to be done to keep the project moving. And really when it goes to the board, it becomes something called a ratification. They're approving it in arrears. And that's a completely acceptable law to do that. But our goal is to keep the project moving because if it stalls on something, then the contractor basically has to stay mobilized and that costs money every day. It extends the nature of the project. And in the end, it's going to cost you more by waiting to get it approved than if they had just taken care of the change right away. So we're trying to keep these projects going as rapidly as we can. And the board understands that when these change orders come to them, likely the work has already been completed and they're ratifying the change at that point. I remember there was a change order on the freezer that we're putting in. What was the change that you found when we were doing that? There were two, but I'll talk about the one that's much more fascinating. In the process to build this freezer, because like I said, it's the size of a classroom. They excavate down into the ground about five feet. And then what they do is they take that dirt and they backfill it again back down in the ground, but they compact it with water and weight to create a really sturdy foundation. And that way you don't have any settling once the construction goes up. And all construction projects do that. When you look at big housing tracks, the first thing they do is they cut out huge chunks of the earth and they make a big pile over here. And then they take that dirt and they spread it over what they just cut out with and then put water on it and drive over it, put more dirt and put water. And they basically compact this earth down really tight. It almost becomes like concrete. And then they put the foundation of the house on there. And you hope it doesn't settle. Well, in the process of this freezer and digging down five feet, they were digging in areas that probably hadn't been touched in a hundred years. Now you remember the grounds here was the original Lancaster School, built in the 1800s, late 1800s. And the ground that they were digging into was, again, it had been about a hundred years. So probably not till the early 1900s had something been done. Well, the plans, the actual documents 
that represent facilities here at the district office, the oldest document we have is from 1950. We don't have anything before that. And we have no idea where they would be. They were lost. Well, lo and behold, there were some things in the ground which we had no idea would be in the ground. The, the first of them was something called a uh, cesspool. That's a fancy name for like uh, a septic tank. Okay. And this was built out of brick and, and kind of the shape of a silo. It was about uh, 12 feet deep. And uh, essentially, uh, it was all brick lined, hand, hand built. So essentially, when water would flow out of the sewer system for the old building, it would flow into the cesspool, and it would just slowly settle down into the ground, and whatever waste materials would be at the bottom, and they would eventually decompose over time. So it's like a septic tank. Mm -hmm. The other thing we found was, for lack of a better word, was a grease trap. It was the craziest grease trap I've ever seen. It was, it was about 12 feet long and contained these different pipes that ran through these metal conduits that allowed grease to settle, but the water to still flow out and, and, and basically trap the grease. Because grease, uh, let's see, grease floats on, uh, I don't know how it works. Anyways, it somehow <laughs> separated the water from the grease and allowed the water to flow out. And eventually, at one point, that did flow into an old city sewer system, but it was abandoned when what used to probably be a kitchen where CNS is, uh, Child Nutrition Services, there must have been a kitchen there at some point. Uh, that whole line was abandoned. So in the process of digging down five feet, they find these things. We can't leave them there. Yeah, no. <laughs> you have to take them out because you have to properly compact the soil. We couldn't take out the cesspool because it went 11 feet further in the ground. So our solution was we filled it with a concrete mixture. And now it's just a, a, a concrete silo of solid concrete. We put a cap on the top and um, they backfilled it with some of the soil. And now, as I mentioned, they're getting ready to put in the tubing for the glycol heating system. They'll put concrete on that, and they'll continue the project. So, uh, you know, we were really hoping when we found that cesspool, you know, our biggest fear is that we were going to look in there, and we were going to see bones or something, and then, <laughs> then you've got to call out law enforcement and, and an archaeologist and all these different things. So, so, yeah, depending upon what you find in the ground, it can cause a complete stop to a project. And I'm sure you've heard stories of, you know, they're digging up and they find uh, bones or arrowheads, and then everything has to stop. And then a, uh, a Native American archaeological team has to come in and actually do archaeological work to see what's there and safely remove the items that are there and return them to the nations so that they can take care of the, the items because they belong to them. That can take weeks. So we, we got lucky that, that, you know, we didn't find Jimmy Hoffa in the cesspool or anything like that. We just got to fill it with concrete. Well, I'm glad we didn't find any uh, bodies on our, our um, land here. Uh, and you know, from 100 years from now, they're going to dig something else and go, what in the world did they do? They filled the cesspool with cement. What, what was going on? So And they'll want to break it up and see, is there something inside it? What were they hiding? Yeah, well, exactly. We have good records now. So, so hopefully they'll look to the records. And, they'll, and of course, the records are now digital. They'll be able to say, oh, it was, we just filled it with concrete because it was an empty hole. <laughs> well, hopefully. So where do you get the funds for school facility improvement and construction? Well, we, you know, we have a lot of sources that we can tap into. Um, it, it, a lot of sources. Um, okay, so to do a lot of the big work that we do here in the district, our district went to the community uh, back in 2012 and we proposed a general obligation bond. And what that is, is essentially a tax. 
that homeowners have to vote on to agree to basically tax themselves. And if you can get 55% of the people who live within the boundaries of the Lancaster School District to approve it, then each year there's a tax on their home, uh, about $20, $25 for every $100,000 in value. And that then creates from all the homes and apartments here in the Antelope Valley uh, a, a stream of income over the course of 30 to 35 years. Now what we as a district do is we go out and borrow money and uh, we borrow it through, we sell bonds, and bonds are like investments. And it gives us a pot of money that we can then go do our construction projects. Those bonds have a life to them that is paid off via the yearly taxes that come in. So, so that those taxes go right back to those bondholders and they get their money back plus they get some interest, which is what typically happens with the bond. We need the money right away. And so there's interest that's paid, but it's all paid by the taxpayers because they, they voted to do that. So uh, back in uh, 2012, uh, the district passed $68 million in authorization. That means that we can borrow up to $68 million in chunks of money. You can't, you can't borrow it all at once because the, the math doesn't quite work right. So usually you borrow $20 million one time and then $15 million a, a year or two later, then another $10 million a couple years later. And it works as your projects progress. You've always got a stream of money. Of course, the taxpayers pay it over 35 years. That pays off the initial money, the $68 million, plus interest to the bond holders who actually buy the bonds. And so with this money, we do our big projects. So the Endeavor Gymnasium was $6 million bond funds. Uh, the Joshua Modernization Project, now we're all said and done with that. That's going to be about $20 million, $25 million. Wow. That's fun. Wow. We also paid off some old construction debt that we had through something called the Certificate of Participation, or a COP. Um, that was at a high interest rate. So as part of our bond language, we said we also want to pay off some old construction debt. So we paid that off right away. So we retired that debt. And uh, we just sold some more bonds recently, and we have about $6 million left in authorization. So probably in another year or two, we'll sell another $6 million, and that's it. We can't get any more money from that bond, but it will likely allow us to complete the projects. So that's the money that we contribute, but the state of California says that they will also contribute towards school construction, whether it's brand new construction, Endeavor Gym, or modernization, they give a certain amount of money based upon, they call eligible grant units, and I won't go into it, but it's about kids, okay. the number of kids. So uh, that means that even though we paid for all of Endeavor, we got some money back from the state, about uh, $800,000, and that goes back into our bond fund. We just got money from the state for Joshua Phase 3 to the tune of about $3.5 million. Well, that goes back into our bond fund. So we get money from the state as their contribution, and we just put that back into the fund so that we can continue to work on our projects. So the state is the second partner when it comes to building uh, schools. As long as the state has money, and occasionally you'll see the state puts on its ballot another school bonds initiative, that means the voters of California have to approve money that can then be distributed to the school. Last election, they actually declined it for the first time in probably 30 or 40 years, the public said no. And there's a reason why I won't go into it, but uh, there's another bond going to come on the next election in 2022. So we should have some more money coming forward. But then there's other ways we can get money too. 
We can use general fund money, which is the money we just get from the state for school operations. Uh, we can use that to do minor work. Uh, we don't do a lot of big projects with that because we have to operate our schools and pay our staff, and that's the primary purpose of it. We also have something called a developer fee, and uh, this is what we, we, we collect money from each uh, construction of a home or an apartment that um, of at least 500 square feet. And the idea is, is that when somebody builds a home, it's going to bring more students to the valley. Well, that means we got to house those students. And so we do this special study called the Developer Fee Justification Study. And it's required if we're going to collect fees from developers. And it's an analysis that says if so many homes are built of this size, it's going to generate this many students. And when you generate students, you have to house them somewhere. And to build those schools, it costs money. So they do this big, long calculation, and it comes out to developer, every time you build a home, you have to pay the district $3, and then it's 18 cents per square foot of that house. So you can imagine on a 3,000-square-foot house, that's a $10,000 fee that the developer pays to the district. And that becomes part of a fund that we have called our developer fee fund, which is used purely for construction or work to house student growth. Because remember when they build homes, your population is going to grow. It can only be used for that. Is that what that, a, a Belarus tax? Is that what that is? Is that That's different? a little bit of a different one. Okay. So, okay, so very close cousin to that is something called a Melarus or a community facilities district. So what happens is, and it is a bit more complicated in how it goes about happening, but if a developer owns a big plot of land and they want to build 200 homes on that land, the developer knows I'm going to have to pay a developer fee to that district for every single one of those houses. If all the houses were 3,000 square feet, he's got to pay $10,000 per house to build those. That's two million bucks. So uh, what the law allows is the law allows the forming of something called a community facilities district. And what happens is, is the, the people who live in this district have to vote. Two thirds of them have to vote yes that they want to be taxed for, for whatever service you're about to happen, in this case, to support schools. But in, a, in most community facilities district, before any houses are built, there's one owner, and that's the developer. So basically, the developer says, I'm going to hold an election. I have one vote, and I vote yes. And so they form their own community facilities district. The advantage to the developer is they don't have to pay a developer fee. And they take the tax and they pass it along to the homeowner. Now, if they didn't do that, when the developer sells that house, they basically have to jack the price up by $10,000. You know, because they get their money back. Yeah. They just make the house a little more expensive. And at CFD, they can help sell the house for $10,000 less. But then the homeowner has to be disclosed to... There's a tax on here, because this is a CFD, and we tax those people, I think it's about uh, $1.45 per square foot per year. And that fee is for 35 years. Oh, wow. That's oh, a lot more. So it's a lot more, but here's the mentality for most homeowners. Their thought is, I'm not going to live here for more than four or five years. And I'll just pay that tax. I would have been 
I would have had to pay it up front if I bought the house through developer fees. So a lot of homeowners don't really care about it. CFDs used to be a big contentious issue and developers who didn't have a CFD and they said, no, and it was called Mellow Ruse because the guys who wrote the law, one guy was named Mellow and one guy was named Ruse. And so it's called a Mellow Ruse tax. Developers would say, they, they put banners outside these new tracks, no Mellow Ruse. I remember those, people, yeah. People would get excited. That means my taxes are lower. But what they didn't realize is that there's probably a developer fee. That house is going to be more expensive than in the track next door, which has Mellow but I would know if I were to buy, so, so if I were getting ready to retire, thinking I'm going to live in my retirement home for 30 years, I would not move into a Belarus district, a brand new one, because I'd be paying that tax for 30 years. And every year it goes up 2%. Mm. I'd be paying that for 30 years. At the end of it all, I would have paid five times as much as the developer fee because it's about a seven-year break. After paying that tax for seven years, it equates to what you had been if you had just paid it as a developer fee up front. Mm -hmm. The beauty of a develop of a CFD though is those monies have much more flexibility than developer fees. Developer fees have to be for growth. CFDs can be used as long as you in lots of different ways, as long as you establish that somehow the people in that community who pay the CFD will benefit from whatever you're gonna do with the money. So I can't take that money and go to the other side of the district and build a school because those people aren't benefiting from it. Mm -hmm. What I probably would want to do is I'd want to build a school that those people could then go to. And then they would know that they're developing, we call that a nexus. There's a nexus created between the tax they pay and the benefit they get in their particular facility. So those are our biggest pots of money. There's other little pots of money along the way, but... You know, we'll be here till 4 o'clock talking. <laughs> and we don't get any money from the federal government for school construction or anything like that? No, no. Uh, we do get monies from the federal government, but almost all the time they have to be spent directly on students, uh, things for students, uh, professional development uh, for our staff. I have yet to see a federal program that has monies going directly to facilities. Okay, that's good to know. Um, so thank you very much for coming on. It sounds like you are very, very, very busy. Um, at least you have a talented staff and um, a lot of expertise in facilities. I know we have our own electrician. We have our, our own people that do a lot of our own stuff, which is really nice that we don't have to contract out for some of those services. Um, That's correct. But they're doing a great job. I want to give a community shout-out uh, for our food drive that we did on February 6th in partnership with Salva. Uh, Dr. Miguel Coronado referred them to us and we were able to pass out lots of food to our families, um, some fresh produce, some staples that they needed, and uh, we had a lot of people that came and picked up that food, so that was really a, a great project. Uh, the Welcome Center worked on coordinating that and um, it was really nice for our families. Our next podcast is going to be Creative Principles, some of our principals that had some great ideas during the pandemic and how they reached kids and did some creative things. I'm looking forward to talking with them. And you can find this podcast on iHeartRadio, Sprecher, iTunes, SoundCloud, just about any place, and on our district website. So thank you, Dr. Fries, for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.